We had a true false test last week to introduce us to Second John. If you were not here, and you uh, let me encourage you to have a copy. So if you're not here, who needs a, a true false thing from last week? Anybody? Everybody got one? Carmen, couple here. Here, Carmen, I'll let you, and you can pass pass them out. So if you need that, raise your hand. I would you to take that, kind of get you orientated, and it kind of, uh, as one person, uh, several in fact of you said, hey, that was really beneficial. In fact, I, I, I didn't get as many right on that as I really should have. And so that, that's just reaffirming that this is the right time. Uh, I prepared this series uh, over five years ago and uh, then went in a different direction. And when I looked at it again uh, this past month, I was like, man, I didn't realize how much work on that, and so uh, this is the the right time, the right place. True or false tests, you know, as you look over that uh, through the is three letters: first, second, and third John. The apostle John is providing timeless tests to discern authentic Christianity, authentic churches, and authentic Christians. And so, let's check our understanding of the relationship between gospel truth love and obedience before we study Second John. And so you can read through there, and uh, we went over that, and, or at least gave you the, the, the answers to that. But the bottom line is, listen, anytime we have a true-false test, that's a little uncomfortable. And I'm just telling you right now, as we dive in, even though this is a short book, and the concepts seem so basic, truth, love, obedience, we're going to be uncomfortable, just like tests can be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for you, for me, for all of us. But the good news is, growth never comes without discomfort. Change never comes without that kind of discomfort. But it's worth it, because truth matters. And the reality is, this. Truth has, if, if you don't, if you reject the truth, if we don't know the truth, there are consequences to not knowing, loving, and obeying the truth. So I want you to, oh, why did I do that? I'm sorry. You should have yelled at me. Don't put that down. You still got to, oh, now I'm going to have this. Take a look at this and see if there are consequences to truth. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'd be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't 
completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you're six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Wow. Wow. Very, uh, it, I mean, it, it, it's fun if it wasn't, if it wasn't true. Okay. If it wasn't reality, it would be humorous. Actually, it's, it's bone chilling. It's grieving. It's devastating. It's devastating. And my heart really went out, most of all, to the young man that was trying to reason through a world in which truth is meaningless. Okay. Well, if you can reason with me about it, then I can accept that. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if, if truth is meaningless, and that's what I want you to see, that video shows us that truth has become meaningless. It is meaningless in our culture. And sadly, in many churches and with, with many professing Christians, truth is simply that meaningless. The pressure to compromise the truth of the gospel has never been greater in our culture, but not in church history overall. That's what we said last week, that, that uh, uh, the pressure that we're under is not new to the history of Christianity, but it's certainly true and new to our culture. But where is that pressure to compromise felt the most? It's illustrated in that video. It's the pressure to let love determine what is truth. The pressure to let love determine or let one's own viewpoint, one's own opinions determine what is truth. Every one of them knew these things you're saying are not true, but if they're true for you and they don't hurt anyone else, then they're okay with me. In fact, as that one man said, if you can reason with me enough, I may even believe that you are a six foot five Chinese woman even though you are a white man who is much shorter. Second John, turn your Bibles to Second John. Second John speaks directly to this kind of error and false teaching by telling us no matter how meaningless, how meaningless truth has become in our culture, and no matter how much truth means less and less in some churches, truth matters. The truth matters, so long for the truth of the gospel and make it a priority in our lives in our lives, and in our local church. The Bible places a priority on gospel truth over even love. And because gospel truth is God's priority, we should long, we should long for that truth. Now, that's the big idea of this letter, 2 John, that we began introducing last week. And we said that we're, that we're trying to just answer, we're looking at, at, at verse 1, even not even all of verse 1. We're just looking at the first part of verse 1. It says, to the elder, to the chosen lady or the elect lady and her children. And we're answering the question, to whom is, does truth matter? To whom does truth matter and why should it matter? 
To whom does it matter and why should it matter? And we saw that last week that truth matters to God's elect people. Truth matters to God's elect people who long for the truth. And we saw it mattered to two specific uh, groups of people. First of all, truth mattered to the elder leader who wrote this letter. Again, Second John, the elder. In fact, Third John begins the same way, the elder. And so the question becomes, who is the elder? And I've given you a, uh, there's a chart over there, the Apostle John's writings in Scripture. So if you want to look at this, it explains the Gospel of John, First, Second, Third John in the book of Revelation and how that all relates to uh, the Apostle John. Because what we saw was the, the man who is writing this letter is the Apostle John, rather some unknown person. And the reason he refers to himself as the elder is because his age is such, he is the last living apostle. So we're really hearing, you know, you always think, now what would the apostles say to us? Well, this is the message of the last living apostle in, in around the last decade of the first century of Christianity, and already there's a need for this message. So that reminds us, that no matter how crazy our nation is getting, no matter how crazy our culture is getting, it's nothing new. Second John is as relevant as today's video, and yet it's as true as over 2,000 years ago. And so his age made him the last living apostle, but he also called himself the elder. He didn't say he was John because he had a close association with those he was writing. The Apostle John settled in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, and he was kind of like the, the, the godfather. He's kind of like the, the old man. You know, everybody knew the old man when he said, hey, I'm the old guy, the old man, the last living apostle. They all knew, oh, that's John, the beloved apostle John. Jesus loved him, and we love him, and we know who he is here in the area of Asia Minor, which Asia Minor, by the way, is modern-day modern Turkey, which has now been uh, swept over with Islam. And so, but there was a time when modern-day Turkey had, uh, the gospel had infiltrated this such that the churches in that area would know. If John said, hey, I'm the, the elder is addressing you, if you heard this letter, you would know who they were talking about. But, just because he doesn't mention his name and just because he doesn't identify himself as an apostle, it doesn't lessen his authority. He's one whose authority was widely recognized and highly respected. In fact, I gave you a map. This is based on the seven churches of Revelation, but that's the point. The seven churches of Revelation is the same area that we're talking about. So, you can see that number one on that little map, that number one is the city of Ephesus. And from that city, he was writing and he was ministering and he was traveling, not only to the other six churches there that are listed, but to little local churches all over the place. So he's addressing maybe one of those churches or another local church in that area. But that kind of gives you the area. You see Greece there, you see Turkey, you see the area that's laid out. So I just wanted you to visually see that. So John's writing to a local church and he's saying, look, I'm the elder in the, in the sense that I have the authority of a pastor, but also an apostle. I'm one whose age is such that I'm the last living apostle and one who you know very well through our close ministry association." So even though I'm not calling myself an apostle, you know me, and you know I'm writing with the authority of apostle. Now let's get after this problem that has taken over in the churches of this area. Truth matters to men called by God to preach and lead the truth. But it also matters, or should matter, to the people they lead, to the members of those local churches. So that's the second thing we saw last week was truth mattered to the elect lady and her children who received this little letter. Again, look in your Bibles. 2 John, verse 1. There's only one chapter in the book, so it's just verses. Verse 1. The elder to the chosen or elect lady and her children. Now, when we read that with modern eyes, we're like, I, I have no clue. 
I have no clue. What is that talking about? What is an elect lazy? Although last night at prom, I would say, I know, my daughter looked like an elect lady. She was special and set apart. And that's really a lot of the idea that we have here, is being chosen by God, not just as individuals, but as a local church. So who is the elect lady? And her children. We saw last week, number one, it, it's a personification rather than an actual woman. Some people think John's writing just to a woman and her kids. And that could be it, but it doesn't seem likely. And I won't go into the reasons for that. Uh, you can look that up, or I, I'll gladly share that with you uh, later. But it's a personification of a church, it's a picture of a local church and the members who make up that church. Now, it was very common in John's day to do that. You would refer to a city as a woman, and you would refer to the inhabitants of that city as her children. And we still do that today. We sometimes refer to cities in the feminine. Okay, so that was common. And it's a biblical practice. If you've read any of your New Testament, you know that the apostles loved to refer to the church as a woman as a betrothed bride, as a beloved bride, as a uh, pure virgin. And so, uh, virgin. And so these are typical pictures. But I want to take us a little deeper today than what we were able to do last week. And I want you to see the reason for this. Why in the world would John refer to a church as an elect woman and her children? It's a way to place the truth of this letter in the context of loving relationships, that's the lady part, and her children, and sovereign grace, that's the elect part. And I just want you, I just want to, I just want to bear down on that. I'm going to read some scriptures. I encourage you to look them up as, as I read them, but I just want you to hear the emphasis, not just in John, not just in this one letter, but in the Apostle Paul and his letters. So let's look at it. Why is John picturing a local church as a lady and her children? And here's why. And I think I have this in your notes. Because the moral, relational, and doctrinal purity and unity of a local church is pictured in at least three ways in Scripture. First of all, a betrothed virgin. Uh, virgin. Uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.2, let me read this. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Here's Paul talking to the church at Corinth, a church that was immoral, a church that was messed up, a church that had, was losing sight of the truth, a church that was being disobedient in certain areas. Here's what he says to him: I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ... I might present you, you as a local church, as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom, you, whom we have not preached... Or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received. Or a different gospel, which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. Oh, hey, we love to hear different gospels. We love to hear about different Jesuses. We love to hear about different spirits other than the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, look, you've been betrothed. You've been committed to one husband. And it's my job as an apostle and as an elder to make sure you remain faithful and loyal to your one husband. You don't go around committing spiritual adultery by listening to false gospels and false teachers. You remain pure and holy. Pure and holy. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5. He likens the church to a beloved wife. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did Christ die for the church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the truth. 
making her pure, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and blameless. Here's what I want you to see. He's using these word pictures to emphasize that just as a husband protect and make sure his wife lives in a pure and holy environment, free from degradation by porn, free from being demeaned or abused in any way, but always in a growing, healthy, loving, pure, truthful environment. Hey, that's how we ought to be about the church. And we do it through the Word of God, not through popular opinion. Or or, 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 or or votes. Hey, how many want to, you know, how many think we should believe this today? How many think we should believe this tomorrow? And then he goes on in 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, The church is the household of God. The household. Not just a family, but it's a whole network of relationships. And guess who's the master of the household? The Lord Jesus Christ. We live as a family with one master, and he's Jesus. And listen what he says in 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says, In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Listen, our local church... Our local church is a church that belongs to the living God. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And He has entrusted with us to be that pillar, that support, that foundation of the truth of the gospel. Wow! Just like you would be true to your family, even more so we should be true to the family of God and to the truth of God's Word. So notice what it says there in your notes. The truth of Christianity is best lived out in the context of loving, obedient relationships in a local church under the loving headship of the sovereign master of the household, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says, you're a lady, because you've got an awesome husband. You're a lady and her children, because you have an awesome master and head of your home. Now be faithful to him. Now why is John picturing the local church as an elect lady? Okay, this is where it gets a little weird, because elect, chosen, election. We don't even understand that concept very well, much less calling a church that, right? How many times have you referred, oh, I go to Glenwood, the elect church? I mean, people would think you're weird, but he's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to saved people. And it ought to be, it ought to be normal for us to talk to one another. We're an elect church. But how do you know that? And why is it important? Well, let me show you some things. First of all, Because the moral, relational, and doctrinal purity and unity of a local church is secured by God's sovereign grace alone. He's saying to you, look, you guys are in this chaotic situation. And by the way, Glenwood's in a chaotic situation. You see the video? Our kids are in a chaotic situation, and we start to panic, and we start to think, I've got to do this to secure my family. I've got to do this to make things right. I've got to do this to live in a stable place. And he's saying, look, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you think. You're not in control. It's the sovereign grace and choice of God, of His people, and of His local church that will keep us stable when people think white males can be Chinese women. When, When this culture thinks men can be women, and women can be men, and restrooms can be unisex what stabilizes us is the sovereign choice of god to say you are my people i have revealed my truth to you i have shown my love to you and i have enabled you to obey me don't worry stay focused you're elect is that encouraging to you is that encouraging it ought to be it is encouraging we're secure and stable and let me show you how this plays out the elect We are secured by God's sovereign grace as the elect or chosen people of God. Let me just read you some verses. 1 Peter 5.13. She who is in Babylon. This is the the church at Rome. Rome was pictured as Babylon. This happens a lot. So Rome, uh, the church at Rome, is chosen together with you. So 
It's not just us being the elect church, but God chooses. God's election makes all of his churches equal in his sight. Okay, so we don't have, you know, the mega churches in big, big, better than the smaller churches, and the smaller churches aren't more holy than the bigger churches. Hey, God's elect churches are chosen together. There's unity, not in the size of our churches, not in the greatness of our ministries, not in our budgets and how many people are in seats or in the pews. We are equal because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's grace. Amen? Man, that's just good stuff. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen, an elect people, an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's really the idea of election. You are chosen by God to be possession. He owns us. And guess what? He takes care of what he owns. Amen? He takes care of what he owns, even in chaotic times. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us or elect us in him before the foundation of world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been elect or chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen or elect you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Listen, election has a purpose, and it's to secure our salvation, our sanctification, and our ultimate glorification, even as a church. 2 Timothy 2.10 For this reason, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And then one more, Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those that are chosen or elect of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to to godliness. Now, why am I reading those? Because it jumped out at me. I'm like, okay, well, where else in Scripture is the church called elect? Well, what? A lot of places. And it's at the beginning of letters where Paul and the apostles are identifying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who we are. We are God's elect people. And guess what? That impacts what we believe, how we live, and how we love. That's just good. Just good stuff. So don't, you know, when you read this, I hope you never read to the elect lady the same again. I hope you never think about our church the same again. We're a, we're a lady that needs to be kept pure and honored and respected. This church body of believers needs to be kept pure, honored, and respected, cherished, and constantly led to be more holy and more pure. But also it's an elect lady. We are chosen of God. We're not small or insignificant because of size or money. We are special in His possession. I don't know about you, but we need to be reminded of that. So, what's the bottom line here? As the elect lady and her children, and by the way, the children are the members in the church. The lady is the church corporate. Okay, So, we're all children uh, of uh, of the church. Now, here's what it says. The doctrinal, relational, and moral security, purity, and unity of local churches and their members is found in God's electing love and sovereign grace, not the popular culture, not political correctness, not in a political party. We're secure, we can be unified, and we can remain pure because God's chosen us. Amen? In Christ Jesus. Man, that's just good stuff. Good stuff, Chris. Keep it up. Okay, I will. Okay, so what's the big idea? The big idea is truth matters not only to the leaders of local churches, but it matters to local churches and their members. Why? Because we owe our existence to the truth of God's electing love, and we share that love with one another in truth and in obedience. So, here's where we are today. Here's the bottom line. Truth matters to us. Truth matters to us. Truth matters to us as God's elect people. The truth of the gospel 
is the measure of authentic Christianity, authentic churches, and authentic Christians. So let me, let, let's, let's break that down. First of all, truth matters to church leaders. Called by God to preach and teach the truth of the gospel. That's who truth matters to. Who does truth matter to? It matters to church leaders. And if it doesn't matter to your church leaders, then find another church. And don't settle in a church till you find a church where truth of God's word and the gospel matters to the leaders. Now, I can say that with the utmost confidence because I know we have such a church by God's grace. And we have a legacy as a church in that way. First John, I want you to turn there. First John 4, 5. Turn to First John 4, 5. You really can't understand Second John without reading through 1 John. So if you want to read through 1 John in the weeks to come to kind of better understand what he's saying, because in fact, he wrote 1 John and now he's applying it to a local church in 2 John. So here's what he says in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, follow along, verse 5. He's talking about the false teachers. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. Listen, you can mark a false teacher by what they say and who listens to them. And then verse 6, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. Now, how do we do that? That we there is not the apostles. Here's how you know truth. John's saying, hey, I'm an apostle. And when you listen to the other apostles, we're from God, we've been sent from Christ, and now we have, you say, well, I don't know any apostles. That's good, because they don't exist anymore. So how do I listen to them? It's in this book. You listen to this book. So when you are under a preaching or teaching from someone that's preaching from this book, and you have your book open, which is why you ought to bring your book, and why you ought to have your book open, I don't care, digital or not, maybe, you know, that's a whole other topic. But here's my point. Have it open. Be looking. And when it's consistent, then you know, hey, this person's speaking on behalf of God, and I need to listen as though it is God speaking. Truth matters to church leaders who know God and they know His truth. And they listen to Jesus, and they listen to His apostles because they spend time in this book and they teach from this book, the Bible. They preach and they teach the Bible as God's Word. Truth matters to those who hold to the truth of the gospel as the only way of salvation for those who are far from God. Listen, it matters what is preached from this book. It matters where this book is believed because the eternal destiny of every one of the seven and a half billion people on this planet depend on it. There is no other way. Okay? Truth matters to God's chosen and called leaders who have learned to discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, and they teach their people to do the same. This is why you need to be at this series. Listen, I'm telling you, you can listen and you can attend church and not know how to discern. You must learn to discern. That's why I gave you that test up front. Look at that test. Did you miss a lot? If you missed a lot, you got to learn to discern. That's okay. Don't put... I'm not talking down to you. I'm trying to build you up. I'm tr- I want to equip you through this series to learn to discern. Why? Because your salvation depends on it. The salvation depends on it. And if you are God's elect people, you long to discern truth from error. Secondly, truth matters to local churches who are filled with God's elect people in whom the truth abides forever. One of the things I'm so thankful for growing up in this community is the God-given turnaround of Midwestern Seminary because for uh, 54 years living in this community, I've driven by big, large churches that had turned liberal. That seminary. Churches haven't recovered. And you can name all that, and they're all within driving distance. And they're big, and they own property. And they were big buildings because they used to be filled with God-given elect preachers and God-elect people. And that seminary went liberal and those churches went liberal and it emptied them. And they have different agendas and they have different purposes. And God is turning that around and guess what? It strengthens us. Our church is strengthened when the truth is taught and men are trained, men and women are trained in truth. Listen, truth matters to local churches. And it needs to matter to everyone. You don't, don't, don't you, don't ever say, oh, that's just 
Bruce's and Chris's job. Now, that's all our job. It matters to all of us. Amen? It, it better matter because my leaders. My kid went through Discovery Hour. I hope it mattered to you, Discovery Hour. Listen, it got to matter to everybody from the nursery to the seniors. Amen? Them seniors, you got to watch them. So we got to keep them in the truth. Okay, now, here's the deal. Look at 2 John. We're finally going to look a little bit in 2 John. I want you to see how important abiding in the truth is to this letter. Look at 2 John 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. But look at verse 2. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. We are to abide in the truth because the truth abides in us. Look at verse 4. I was very glad to find some, sadly not all, some of your children, that is the members, walking in truth, just as we received the commandment to do from the Father. Drop down to verse 9. Look at verse 9. What a warning to us this morning. Look at verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Listen, truth matters to his elect people. Look at that chart there. This is what 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is all about. Truth matters as the measure of authentic Christianity, authentic churches, and authentic Christians. And those all go together. Listen, authentic Christianity is nothing without a local church. And an authentic Christian without a local church that prizes truth is nothing as well. It all fits together. And look at how 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John fits together. First, he wrote 1st John. It's written in general. There's no one identified as the addressee. And it's just written to churches and Christians. And it says, look, here's the measure of authentic Christianity. If you want to know authentic Christianity, read 1 John. And here are the principles for everyone who claims to be a Christian. Then in 2 John, he writes to a specific local church. And he says, look, in your specific situation, I'm going to take these principles and apply it to your church. So that you'll be an authentic church. And then when you get to 3 John, he writes to an individual Christian and he says, Look, truth measures authentic Christians. Here's how you know you as an individual are an authentic Christian. So that gives you an overview. But let me just say this before I move on. Truth, if you haven't gotten it yet, you're going to get it now in the next two minutes. Truth is a priority among God's elect, called out people in local churches. They long for the truth because, are you ready? Because God the Father reveals the truth and is the God of truth. Deuteronomy 32. God is, the Son is the way, the truth, and the life, and is full of grace and truth. John 14. John 1. God the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth who guides into all truth. John 14, 17. The Bible is called the Word of Truth in 2 Timothy 2.15 and John 17.17. 17. The gospel is also called the word of truth in Colossians 1.5. We are saved by truth, John 14.6. We are sanctified by truth, John 17.17 17 and 19. We serve God in truth, 2 Timothy 3.17. We are instructed, rebuked, corrected, and discipled by the truth, 2 Timothy 3.16. We are set free by the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, John 8.32. We hear Jesus' voice through the truth, John 18.37. We rejoice in truth. We are to speak the truth. We are to obey the truth. We are to love the truth. We are to abide in the truth, because the truth abides in us forever. We are to walk in the truth on a daily basis. Therefore, therefore, we are to long for the truth and make it a priority in everything we think, we feel, we walk, we do on a daily basis. Do I do that perfectly? No. Do you do that perfectly? No. Should you be striving, fighting, making it a priority to do it more and more? Let's hear it. Yes. So, We've answered the question, to whom does truth matter? Hey, don't be surprised when you go 
to a secular university and ask unsaved people or professing Christians and you get answers like you got in that video. Don't be surprised. Truth doesn't matter to anyone. God's truth does not matter except to God's elect leaders and God's elect people in His elect churches. Okay, That's why we got to get it out there. Because we long for it. We make it a priority. And God's going to use it in the lives of others just like He used it in your life. Who brought the truth to you? Who brought the truth to you? Who longed for it and made it a priority to share the truth with you? So this isn't about us versus them. We're better because we're elect. They're bad because they're going to hell. It's like, hey, we were them. And the only way, reason we got in on the election was nothing that we did. It was what God did, and He wants to do it for others. And we don't know who they are unless we share the gospel with them. Okay, so number two, why does it matter? Why does truth matter? Why should you stick out this study? Truth matters in a world of lies and liars. Truth matters in a world of lies and liars. First thing I want you to see is the lies of false teaching. The lies of false teaching. Whether you're reading 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John, there are three tests. There are three tests that John uses in all three letters, and they're found in all three letters. You see, there was a false teaching that was beginning to grow in that area of Asia Minor that I showed to you on that map. It came to be known as Gnosticism, and Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Okay, knowledge. So don't get freaked out. I'm just telling you what it's called. Focus on the fact that it was all about knowledge. It was about, it was about secret knowledge. Jim, let me tell you about this. Don't tell Becky, though, because she's not as spiritual as us. But if you know this, if I tell you this, and you, you hang with me, and you come and join my little group, you'll learn the secret knowledge to make you really spiritual and know God. Hey, we got people knocking on our door saying that kind of stuff. Right? From different cults. It's about knowledge. And here's what, here's what their secret knowledge focused on. Their secret knowledge focused on one main thing. And if you get this in your head, you're going to understand these letters and you're going to understand the series much better. Here's what they said. Our secret knowledge is this. And they taught many things, but here's the main thing. Whatever is material is not spiritual. Whatever is non-material is spiritual. So the more abstract, the more... Ooh, meditate, inner knowledge, inner light. More you think about that, that's spiritual. But what you do with your body, hey, you're free to do. Because material things are not really spiritual. Guess what? This whole creation that we came in and enjoyed, nah, doesn't matter that much. It's material. Now, what does that do for the teaching of Christianity? Well, first of all, it means the incarnation is an abomination. Why? Because God, who is spirit, became physical flesh. Yuck. You know, the, 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 the Gnostic would say, ooh, that's yucky. That's unspirit. Who, what God, what spirit would want to so become flesh? We're trying to get rid of this flesh and become pure spirit. Here's what else it does to biblical Christianity. So it, it, it distorts the doctrine of Christ. And when you distort the doctrine of Christ, what have you done to Christianity? You've destroyed it. There is no Christianity without the Incarnation. So he's going to talk a lot about the Incarnation. But if the physical world is not important, guess what? And if I believe the secret knowledge, then guess what I get to do with my body? What? I get to do anything I want, and I can still be spiritual. And look, that's part of the world's religions. Uh, many of the world's religions say the same thing. And you know what? We've so watered down Christianity that we've begun to say that. We've begun to say that as long as you profess Christ and you're still living in deep habitual sin, you're okay. Because you, hey, that's Gnosticism. That's Gnosis. Oh, you got the right knowledge? You can say the right things, but you're living in sin? And I'm to treat you as a, as a godly Christian? As a, as a true Christian? That's Gnosticism. Are you with me? So, morally, you can live in sin and be spiritual as long as you have the special knowledge. Guess what it does to relationships? 
You know what immorality does to relationships? What does it do? Destroys them. You know what you know what false doctrine does to relationships? It destroys them. And we get deceived and we get we get burdened for people we love and we think, you know what? If I can just compromise on the truth a little bit, I'll win them back. And listen, false doctrine ruins relationships and it destroys morality. And that's what you have in that chart there, okay? That's what you have in that chart. There's three tests. First, uh, any teaching that fails the doctrinal test. And what's the doctrinal test? It does not walk in the truth of the gospel. Whatever The doctrinal test is, look, if you're teaching what's not in here and what not is not consistent, or you're adding to what is in here, and you deny who Jesus is, who the Trinity is, what the Bible is, then you have failed the doctrinal test and you distort and deny biblical truth. That's the doctrinal test. The second test is false teaching fails the relational test. It does not walk in love for God and one another. And that is not loving unbelievers. He's talking about loving believers. And instead, false doctrine divides and deceives the body of Christ and it rips it apart. Third, it fails the moral test. It does not walk in obedience to God's commandments. And instead of walking in obedience, it defies God's commandments and it defiles by living in an immoral and divisive way. Well, there's the three tests. We're going to see those. You see them in 1 John, you see them in 2 John, you see them in 3 John. And they're all interrelated. See, you know, uh, in college I had my first, uh, actually it was after college, my, my favorite, one, one of my favorite professors in college was the man that I first, first learned theology from. Trained at the school I eventually went to. Loved that guy. He loved me. He, you know, I, it was just it, freshman year coming here, just soaking up the truth of the feet of this guy. But here's the truth. He went, he, he fell away, denied the Bible, fell away from Christianity. But here's the thing. It's not a head knowledge. This man was brilliant. It's never a head knowledge issue. It's always a heart issue. Oh, so many people that deny the faith that they grew up in, that they even were trained in and have a doctorate in, that deny the truth, it's usually a moral issue underneath. It's not that somehow they figured out, hey, you know what? The Bible's not really true. Jesus really isn't incarnate. They didn't discover that. What they realize is, I want to live in sin, and these things prevent me from doing it and give me a guilty conscience, so I'm just going to get rid of the standard. I'm going to get rid of the Savior. I'm going to get rid of that means of salvation that sanctifies because I want to live in my sin. And it happens to anyone. It can happen to us. It can happen to me. Second thing I want you to see here is that the liars who are false teachers do one of two things. Liars who are the liars who are the false teachers that teach this kind of false teaching, they do one of two things. Now, 1 John 4.1 says... There are many false prophets who have gone out in the world. Second John 7, in our letter, look at Second John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. There's the Gnosticism. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Wow, John, the apostle of love, isn't being very loving, is he? Oh, yes, he is. Because it's love that speaks truth, even if it hurts. So we could go on. The point I want you to see is the word many. There's many. Listen, there's many. We should not be surprised. But here's what happens. When false teachers, often also called apostates, which simply means fall away. When false teachers fall away from the truth. These are people that may be ordained, might have been chosen as your pastor, as a pastor in a church, and they fall away. One minute they were teaching the gospel, now they're denying the gospel. This could, be, uh, this could be church members who grew up in church, believe the gospel, now they don't believe the gospel, and they're evangelists for false gospels. 
Here's what they do. They do one of two things. When false teachers fall away from the truth, they either leave true churches and cause division on their way out. They leave true churches. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Come on, talk to me quick. Because what? Yeah, right. What did you say? Misery loves coming. Exactly. The bottom line is, hey, this is, a, this is an elect church with elect leaders who love the truth and long for it and make it a priority. And guess what? There's no room for me here. There's no influence for me here. There's no place for me here. And so they leave. Listen to 1 John 2.19 again. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. I love reading that verse. The point is, you were in, but now you're out. You were in, but now you're out. Why? Because your doctrine changed. Not because we changed. The doctrine changed. Okay? But sometimes... When they leave the faith, they don't leave the church. And that's why there's all sorts of verses that say, look, you've got to discipline and deal with false teaching. So the first thing that false teachers do is they leave true churches. But guess what? They never stay away for long. Number two, they enter true churches. They enter true churches and homes and cause deception. And this is the focus of Second John. He is writing to this church because false teachers that have left other godly churches are now coming to their church wanting to deceive and destroy them and, and, and cause problems. And he's saying, look, don't throw out the welcome mat. Be inhospitable to false doctrine and false teachers. Show them to the door. In fact, don't even let them get in the door. All right. So that's the idea. That's the idea of this letter. You can see the rest. The chart you have at the bottom of the page is an overview of the rest of this series. When we long for the truth and make it a priority, then we love by the truth. That's next week. We live in the truth. That'll be the week after. We look for the truth and we learn the truth. So that's what we're going to do. I hope you're motivated. I hope you're inspired. I hope you see the relevance of this, of this study. Amen? Long for it, make it a priority, and that begins with hang out in this series, and let's go through this together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we would be in deep, hot trouble without you. Thank you that before the foundation of the world, and on the basis of nothing that we have done, we were not smart enough, we were not godly enough, good enough, strong enough to choose you, but you chose us in Christ Jesus, in love, that we may know the truth, that we may love the truth, and we may obey the truth. Lord, you enable us to pass the test. You give us that ability in Christ Jesus. Father, maybe dwell on these things. Think about where we are. Think about our test answers that we took last week. And just think about where we are in relation to truth, love, and obedience and prepare our hearts for this series. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.